Charlie Wright is an investment advisor representative with Partner Vest Advisory Services, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. The views and opinions expressed by our guests are for informational purposes only and do not necessarily reflect the views of Partner Vest Advisory Services, LLC, or Charlie Wright. Partner Vest and our guests are unaffiliated companies. No information in this discussion is intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice to any person, nor is it an offer to sell any security. Welcome to the Strategic Investor. Join us as we interview some of the world's most productive asset managers and uncover sophisticated and unique investment strategies in the markets. Here is your host, Charlie Wright. Hello and welcome to Strategic Investor Radio and octalkradio.net, where we bring you investment strategies you are not hearing elsewhere. Please contact us at info at strategicinvestorradio.com and go to our website to hear podcasts of all of our interviews and shows, strategicinvestorradio.com. Today's January 29, 2016. I'm Charlie Wright, and we're very pleased to have with us here in the studio today, David Young, founder and CEO of Anfield Capital out of Newport Beach, California. And again, David is here with us in the studio. David, welcome to Strategic Investor Radio. Thank you so much, Charlie. A pleasure to be here. So David, uh, your background is certainly one of uh, being well prepared to be in the financial industry. You have an MBA with an emphasis in finance out of UC Irvine. You've been an adjunct professor at UC Irvine in finance. You're a chartered financial analyst, a CFA. You had a a storied 15-year career at PEMCO, and I'm sure you're full of stories, but we'll leave those for off air here. And you ended that uh, in London for several years, heading the account management group, managing about 50 billion, that's billion with a B for PIMCO. You started Anfield Capital 2008. What did we leave out? Gosh, I think you got it all, Charlie. It was uh, quite a wild ride. PIMCO is, for those listeners who are familiar with it, uh, quite an amazing story. And I was very fortunate to be there during a solid 15 years of their meteoric rise and work with some of the best investors, uh, I think it is fair to say, really, on the planet. And it was a wonderful place to be. So, David, uh, what is the primary focus of Anfield Capital? Well, Anfield Capital management uh, was was really a team that had come over a course of a few years uh, over from PIMCO. I came first with a couple of others. Our numbers are now something in the dozen range. And we do something which is something we pioneered uh, at PIMCO and it even goes a bit further back. I'll tell a little story if I may. I uh, was fortunate enough to be able to get an MBA at the Palmerage School of Business here at the University of California at Irvine. And one of my professors, we all have those teachers that, that just made that, that impact on us, right? And we'll never forget uh, the, that experience. One of them was Dr. Naifu Chen. And uh, Dr. Chen has a special place in the history of the development of uh, modern finance, working with some of the greatest minds uh, that, that that field has, has ever known. Uh, he was, uh, as I mentioned, one of my professors, and he had a profound impact on me. Um, in short, he um, taught me that while most investors spend their time allocating assets or trying to pick individual stocks, those are two difficult things to do, that there was a better way, a third way. And that better way is to identify a risk budget and to allocate risk because return follows risk, not the other way around. This is contrary to many many popular mainstream beliefs. And so he taught me about this concept. Uh, he has continued to work on it. I took it uh, with me to uh, PIMCO and with 
Folks from PIMCO brought it on to Anfield Capital in 2008-9, as I mentioned, and we focus on allocating risk to drive return, not the other way around. And I'm also very happy to say that as of, oh, about six months ago, after having retired uh, from the University of California, uh, Dr. Chen is now back with us, and he is part of our group. Okay, so what you really look at that would cause you to be unique is handling risk, not allocating allocating based upon resources. Exactly right. We, we come at this, generally speaking, we, the industry has come at it, I should say, from this sense of I have an endowment. I have $100, and I want to make that $100 become $200 over some period of time, maybe between now and retirement or college education for the kids, whatever the case might be. So I should spend my time trying to figure out how to allocate that $100 across the asset classes, which are traditionally defined stocks, bonds, real estate, small cap stocks, the list goes on. And if I do that, um, then I should get some commensurate amount of return, and I'll diversify because we learned that too. And there's nothing wrong with it per se, but it's one. it lays down the foundation for disappointment when markets go up very sharply or fall very sharply because you're diversifying your asset class exposure. These are labels. Pardon me. You're not diversifying what goes inside the asset class, which is its own risk factor composition, the thing that drives the performance behavior. So we start at the finish line. We say, how much risk are we prepared to take? And then we reverse engineer that into the assets we need to buy to express that that combination, that blend of risks, we like to think of it as starting at the finish line. Okay, and so tell us, how do you analyze risk then, and how do you measure it uh, when you break apart the actual elements of a particular asset class? Very good question. As it turns out, we think about stocks as being this monolithic, you know, stocks are stocks. Well, Stocks aren't stocks. There's actually a lot more that goes on inside of that that, that economic bundle. And bonds aren't monolithic and, and, and all uniform either. As it turns out, every asset class is made up almost like you would look at a, at a landscape or, or you know, you, sedimentary layers. Every asset class is made up of risk premia, like a totem pole, stacked on top of each other because... The market, the individual investor or investor demands compensation for each degree of risk they take, and each of those degrees of risk is a different type of risk. So we take every asset class, and we slice it horizontally, and we ask ourselves, what is, if you drill down into it, what's it actually made of? What's the DNA of, of stocks, U.S. large cap S&P 500 stocks? What's their DNA? And as it turns out, there's seven or eight different pieces that make that stock do what it does. If you identify the individual parts, you size the individual parts, and then you decide how much of each of that in aggregation you want, then you go and target that blend, and you reverse engineer buying the assets such that you get the resultant blend of risk factors. Those are the things that drive returns. So, Is that so, helpful? Well, it's helpful, but give us an example with stocks, for example. What are those seven or eight elements, or however many there are, that help make make that? Certainly. 
This is an area of academic, practical, and other debate. So I will speak from the perspective of how we define the risk factor world. Uh, there are more complicated, more simple approaches. We think we've got a balance of those two. Uh, long story short, about 60% of the available risk factors, these are the DNA of assets, about 60% of the available risk factors in the world uh, are attributable in our mind to equity risk factors. And they are things we're familiar with. In fact, most investors think about them and talk about them all the time, but they don't think about them in a DNA uh, context. The size of the stock, large cap, mid cap, small cap. The style of the stock. Uh, is it a value-orientated stock? Is it a growth-orientated stock? And how do you ascribe a uh, risk factor to those two? Well, there, there are more. There are certainly industry factors, volatility factors, country and currency factors. That would be the complete set. So there's, you know, there's six or eight of them. Um, that is a longer radio show than I think we have time for today. Uh, okay. There are econometric modeling techniques which allow us to take the asset uh, and take it apart into its component parts and get comfortable it's a lot of statistics uh, and judgment uh, to get comfortable with um, what is the composition of the S&P 500 as an example. And once we understand that, then we're able to isolate the individual parts and only in- own as much of those parts as we want to rather than buy the whole stack of things. I see. Okay, so th- this is fascinating stuff, and uh, certainly uh, w- well above my pay grade uh, at this point, and we really appreciate your willingness to share this with us. Uh, we need to take a short break here, David. We're talking with David Young, uh, founder and CEO of Anfield Capital out of Newport Beach, California, and you're listening to Strategic Investor Radio on octalkradio.net, and we'll be right back. <laughs> According to the consulting firm Strategic Capital Allocation Group, every decade since 1900 has experienced at least one bear market, and several have experienced as many as three. So how do we protect our principal from these declines without missing the gains when prices rise? At Strategic Investor Radio, we interview asset managers with unique strategies designed to both protect and grow your investments. Investing is not rocket science. It's rocket fuel if you know how to harness it. For podcasts of our interviews, please visit us at strategicinvestorradio.com. All right, let's head back to Charlie and his guest. Thank you, Paul. Uh, welcome back to, to Strategic Investor Radio on octalkradio.net. And again, we're talking with David Young, founder and CEO of Anfield Capital. So, David, uh, tell us, you're talking about a risk analysis here, uh, allocating by risk factors, okay, as opposed to asset allocation in the more traditional sense of uh, various other ways. Mm-hmm. So, uh, tell us... Anfield Capital, how, what do you do with, you, you analyze the risk, you come up with answers, do you manage money, do you have a fund, do you have separate managed accounts, do you just give advice to advisors, uh, what's the role of Anfield Capital, what do you do for whom, and uh, how are you compensated? Absolutely. The um, the way, it's sorry, how, how do we access it? Uh, you know, if someone's interested, great, how do I get it? Um, well, 
there, we do not have, uh, we have mutual funds, but they don't pursue this strategy. So we'll talk about this approach. It's accessible via separately managed accounts. Um, our clients, except for a small number of private clients that we work with directly, mostly people we've just known for a long time who were instrumental in the early days of the firm, uh, most of our clients are other wealth managers. As it turns out, Many of your financial advisors, wealth managers, be they at a brokerage, bank, or independent registered investment advisory, many of them don't actually manage the money themselves. Many of them sub-advise it out. Uh, We are one of those sub-advisors, and we typically work with um, medium to medium-large, the very large groups maybe not so much, Uh, wealth management firms that would be on a Schwab or a TD Ameritrade or uh, Fidelity platform. And uh, we make our uh, separately managed account models available through those platforms. So they hire us and we work with them to identify that Mr. Jones is conservative and Mrs. Smith is aggressive. We map that to our array of strategies. Uh, And then what's actually happening behind the scenes is we're the ones buying and selling uh, the securities that make up these private, separately managed accounts towards an agreed-upon set of investment objectives and an overall risk profile. Okay. And how would you gauge, uh, what market conditions would you folks really shine, and what market conditions would would, would your approach struggle more? Actually, I left one important part off that last uh, answer, okay. if I can circle back very quickly. Yeah. Um, we do have a small wealth management practice of our own. That's this smaller group of clients I mentioned, and I should be fair to our, ourselves. My director of business development would be looking at me <laughs> with a look like, you know. Um, that group is called Anfield Advisors. It's a registered investment advisor. Uh, we That group does work directly with private clients of a range of sizes, Uh, And that would be one way that advisors who maybe were in the Orange County area uh, could access uh, what what we're doing on a a direct basis. So just to complete the answer. Okay. So, Charlie, your question was about environments when this approach would do well or maybe not so well. The best way to summarize that, it's it's a complicated answer. I don't want to overcomplicate it. The design is such that if we have a better portfolio design and we... And we construct the portfolio better, higher quality ingredients, lower cost ingredients, by that I mean primarily ETFs, that we ought to be able to weather a wide range of market environments and do at least as well as the market, if not better. This is, this is expectational. That's our goal. The thing that gives this strategy challenges is probably the same that gives every money manager challenges. It would be August of 2015. It would be the last three weeks. It would be a unsignaled, sudden, we think at times irrational, rapid decline or rapid advance in the markets. Because, number one, it shocks the portfolio's overall kind of internal harmony. It, it stress tests it. Number two, we don't have a chance to react. We don't just set the risk factor balance and blend and then forget it. We're making adjustments. We're being tactical. We're moving, you know, steering left, steering right. But when there's no time to make any, uh, you know, counteractive movements, any tactical movements, uh, then sometimes we find ourselves just, just having to endure for short periods of time. Our experience has been, and this is the good news, that once that, short period subsides, and they tend to be fairly short, uh, the portfolio typically, well, goes down less, 
does uh, comes back sooner, and oftentimes, not always, comes back further than the broad market. That's the right kind of behavioral uh, pattern that you want. Okay. Uh, David, let's talk for a minute about uh, fixed income investments. You were with PIMCO. That is uh, their mantra right there. They're fixed income specialists. Uh, I presume that much of what you do uh, is, in really, is, is focusing on fixed income. We are going into a period of rising interest rates. We know that. We don't know how quickly or how far they will rise, but over the coming years, we fully expect interest rates to rise. Uh, that is not going to be good news for principal value of fixed income investments. How are you preparing for that? The preparation is all about acknowledging where you are in the cycle right now, and you just did a good job of summarizing it. It makes makes my job easier. Obviously, we want to keep the overall positioning of fixed income portfolios defensive. What does that mean? That means things that have securities that have a five or seven year or longer time to maturity probably are taking a degree of risk that isn't really going to be compensated for and in fact could magnify a rate increase which would lead to a price decline in fixed income world. So I would think about the overall average maturity or weighted average maturity uh, duration is a number some advisors will use. It's a measure of a portfolio's sensitivity, fixed income portfolio, sensitivity to changing interest rates. These measures want to be kept short. They want to be kept in the two to three year range. I wouldn't be taking more weighted average maturity or duration risk than that because there's not a lot of compensation and there is quite a bit of potential risk. So that's one way you keep your overall uh, interest rate exposure profile low. But David, you know, that's what I hear often, okay, mm -hmm. keep, uh, you know, limited duration. The mm -hmm. problem is, in today's environment, those two, three, four-year <laughs> durations pay next to nothing. I mean, they're not worth doing. It's kind of like Warren Buffett saying that today we're taking on non-compensated risk, Okay. Mm -hmm. well, well, this is true. That's one part of the strategy. The other part of the strategy, because there's multi-layers to it, uh, is, okay, if I'm, I need to be in fixed income markets, uh, we've already assumed that, I want to keep my interest rate exposure low because that's the thing that's likely to be challenging. So what else is out there? Well, there are a lot of other tools to the modern-day fixed income investor, available to, to the modern-day fixed income investor. Uh, so we are using high-quality uh, corporate credit, a little bit of lower quality corporate credit to spice things up to get some additional yield. That's a bond picker's market, though. So as you go towards the latter end of this cycle, which is where we are, I wouldn't just go out and sort of across the board. Buy the index. Buy the I would not do that. That is, that's the sucker punch now. Everybody in, you know, take it down. So um, you need to be selective. You need to... Um, I wouldn't recommend going into those marketplaces unless you're very familiar with them and you have the resources to, to get it you know, generally right. Uh, we would be looking to mortgage-backed securities as a way, to, again, to get additional yield. Again, keep those in shorter duration. Everything's shorter duration, shorter maturity, but we are substituting interest rate exposure as a means to drive the return of the portfolio. We're substituting in place of that investment grade, little high yield, 
mortgage-backed securities, a variation uh, of uh, their on asset-backed securities, a little bit of emerging markets credit, although it has been volatile. So it's really all about looking at the overall pie of the global fixed income market and saying well, it's the core of that of that it's the, the cake we use the bunt cake analogy right what's a bunt cake except a cake where the center has been removed the center if the center is generic market-wide interest rate exposure then we want a bunt cake not a regular cake because we want that out or minimal in the portfolio and we want to substitute that ring around it which are other forms of interest generating uh, risks that are not as susceptible to the current cycle as is the the core rate. One of the things I almost started this by saying is a modest and polite correction, Charlie, to what you said. Sometimes clients and, and advisors will say, well, I'm worried about interest rates. And I'll say, no, you're not. And they say, well, yes, I am. No, you're not. You're worried about U.S. nominal Rather than inflation linked, there's two kinds of interest rates, right? U.S. Not, meaning inflation uh, exposed, U.S. nominal Treasury interest rate cycle. So I have an idea. Don't own it, or if you can, short it. Don't don't try that at home. <laughs> That's more for the experts. And own everything else. Just get off the train tracks of the expected rise in U.S. nominal Treasury rates, because there's a lot of other interest rate vehicles out there. Okay. Do you occasionally try to be tactical and even short uh, certain markets? Uh, we do. In the fixed income marketplace, you do. We do. Uh, harder for an individual to implement those strategies. There are limitations that your average Schwab account, I'm not, I'm not picking on them, the way we think highly of them. There's limitations to what the private client will typically be allowed to do, and there's certainly limitations to what the private client ought to consider doing based on their own skill, expertise. Uh, so we're not advising that as a strategy across the board, uh, but for those who um, have the resources and capabilities, uh, it, it's simple to us, uh, you know, Bill Gross has said more than once, okay, back in the day, okay, I get it. U.S. corporate bonds are overpriced, as an example. Fine. In the global bond market, if something is overpriced, there is something. There has to be something else. Usually it's anti, it's, 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 it's opposite, which is underpriced. So, fine. U.S. corporate bonds, as an example, overpriced. Go find me what's underpriced. Buy that. Oh, and by the way, if you can, short what's overpriced. Okay, very interesting here. Very interesting. Uh, quickly, the high-yield market. Place to stay out of today? The high-yield market is entering a very late cycle, tired, fatigued kind of feel. There's been such a, a reach, overreach, some believe, for yield in a yield-starved, low-interest rate environment that a natural place for investors to gravitate has been high-yield. And it's been the right thing to do for a number of years. Yeah. High yield's been on a very strong run. But it's feeling very much towards the end. And it's also entering a very challenging phase where it's uh, kind of a bifurcated. There's almost two markets going on. And, and you know what's coming next. There's energy and oil-related and everything else. So, again, we're simple people. We think simple wisdoms typically carry the day at the end of the day. 
uh, just avoid or don't don't own at all if you can. We're in a somewhat different situation, but just just avoid everywhere you can. Uh, the most stressed portion of the market, we think oil prices will remain low for um, some time. We don't see a recovery in 2016, which means all those oil, energy, drilling, exploration, pipeline, master limited partnerships, which is about transmission, uh, refining, etc., 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 which is a large portion, um, 15, 20% of the high-yield issuance uh, is exposed in those areas. So we would avoid those until we get more clarity in what is clearly a manipulated oil market uh, given these situations. I'll give you a statistic in a minute, which I think the listeners will find valuable. But the rest of the high-yield market, there are some very attractive components. Uh, biosciences, technology, we're not a huge fan of retail because it's just it's a kind of a tough sector. Uh, transportation, a number of sectors, basically everything but those are, um, I'm speaking generally here, are... Um, don't, they're not fraught with this same cyclical set of risks. Uh, they are still high-yield bonds. They still warrant scrutiny, uh, but they're certainly more attractive than the broad high-yield market uh, taken, taken at that. David, we need to take another short break, our last break here. Again, we're talking with David Young, founder and CEO of Anfield Capital out of Newport Beach, California. You're listening to Strategic Investor Radio on octalkradio.net, and we'll be right back. For today's Financial Minute, we're talking with Mike McDaniel of Riskalyze. Mike, what do you have for us today? Average. The average investor has a risk number of a 53. So as you mentioned, I'm Mike McDaniel, co-founder of Riskalyze. And Riskalyze helps investors learn what their personalized risk number is so that they can invest without fear. So technology now exists to help individuals know exactly what their risk tolerance is, but... It also tells them and is able to show them what investments match that risk tolerance. So at Riskalyze, we convert a risk tolerance into a risk number. That technology helps aid the advisor-client discussion by calculating each investor's personalized risk number, and they range from 1 to 99. And that means, you know, the higher the risk number, the higher the risk tolerance of the investor. The lower the risk number, the lower the risk tolerance of the investor. So here's the, the interesting part. We've analyzed tens of thousands of completed surveys and risk targets set by advisors, and the average investor is a risk number of a 53. So why is that so interesting? Well, a risk number of a 53 matches the risk of a 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio. So think about that for a minute. The average investor has a risk tolerance that suggests that their portfolio consists of 60% stocks, 40% bonds traditionally called the 60-40 portfolio, or some would call it a balanced portfolio. And this is fascinating and extremely insightful. It suggests that probably half of the investors out there don't have the personality or maybe the capacity for a 100% equity portfolio. It also suggests that when an investor is in doubt, you know, they may want to start with a balanced portfolio, something like that 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio, and make adjustments from there. So RiskWise believes in and empowers advisors to help investors identify where they are on that risk tolerance spectrum. And it really begs the question, if the goal is fearless investing, who's average? 
Excellent points here, Mike. Uh, the kinds of things we are not typically hearing at all and the kinds of things that Riskalyze is known for for bringing up. So if somebody wants to learn more, how do they reach you? We make that very simple. They can go to riskalyze.com, our website, and that's R-I-S-K-A-L-Y-Z-E.com. Very good, Mike. Thank you very much. Or they can check out our weekly show on octalkradio.net. Mike, thank you for some uh, words of wisdom here. And now back to our show. And back to Charlie to wrap up with his guest. Thank you, Paul. Again, we're talking with David Young, founder and CEO of Anfield Capital in Newport Beach. Uh, David, uh, tell us a question we like to ask all of our guests here. What keeps you awake at night? What keeps me awake at night is my inability to process why the Federal Reserve, who is supposed to lead the economy, guide the economy, has allowed themselves to become the economy, uh, and then choose to do nothing. Abdicate. (laughs) Kind of. Um, There's a much longer discussion here for another show if you want it, but long story short... The Fed must know that this is a financial cycle. It was born out of subprime, over-leverage, right? All that, banking and financial crisis, that morphed into a real economy cycle. And the medicine and the recovery is different. In the olden days, not that long ago, we haven't had one in a while, though. Most of our economic cycles have been born from the real economy. Something bad happens in the real economy. That's Main Street, get up in the morning, go to work, do your job, go home, run out to, you know, take, take the family out, go shopping. We haven't had one of those in a while because the financial sector has become so much bigger and moves so much faster. So the last few of our economic cycles have really been catalyzed by something in the financial, banking and finance and infrastructure uh, part, of, part of all of this. And, and they're very different critters, and they behave differently, and they need to be treated differently. Um, I know it. I, I thought the Fed knew it. Um, and uh, what I don't understand is why we've continued to throw money at the real economy when that's not where the real source of the problem lied. We, we, uh, at, the, at the end of the day, it's bouncing off of the real economy and going into the financial economy and causing bubbles and volatility and these crazy gyrations because the money's looking for a place to go. Um, it sounds counterintuitive. We need to take that excess liquidity out of the marketplace and the real shame, and we were talking about oil a moment ago, is I remember walking down uh, the beach with my wife uh, about a year and a half ago, and I exclaimed um, a word I won't repeat, watching oil collapse, and she says, what's wrong? And I said, this is going to give the Fed a big get-out-of-jail-free card, and they're not going to raise rates. And I said, in a year or two, we're all going to regret it. And guess what? Because, you know, and I thought it was very enlightening, and then we'll finish here on, on this point. Um, we've been saying for some time, if the Fed is waiting for you know five and a half percent unemployment, which is an old real economy kind of rule of thumb, and waiting for two two and a half percent inflation, an old real economy signal that the money's been in the economy long enough, right? Now we're getting inflation. If they're waiting for those two things, inflation accelerating uh, employment gains and a general rise in the level of cost of goods and services, yeah, CPI. If they're waiting for those as signals to when 
recession or the expansion, I'm sorry, has, has sort of ripened and it's time to start removing interest rates, we're all in trouble because they're not going to get that. Those are real economy signals about a journey that's near completion. We're in a financial economy recession. Right? I was born out of that system and the market's been giving us it's that version's screaming yellow lights, unprecedented and unex- inexplicable volatility and asset prices we can't explain. Those are the symptoms of an of, 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 of a long-in-the-tooth financial economy expansion. And I was dismayed and pleased at the same time to hear some of that recognition go into the Fed's uh, uh, comments yesterday. They're coming to the realization now that this just might be an expansion when we do not get classic job creation and classic general level of goods and services price inflation ta-da um well david uh, you and i and the wall street journal all agree basically on the on those basic points there and uh, we'll, we'll see what happens in the future so that's what keeps you awake at night the second question we always like to ask our guests is what book on investing would you recommend for our listeners can i recommend two please one is a little bit out of date and that was written some time back, just in terms of its publication, but the, but the ideas are absolutely not out of date. In fact, the title and the book was written uh, 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago, by my former employer, Mr. Bill Gross. And it's called Everything You've Heard About Investing is Wrong, How to Profit in the Coming Post-Bull Markets by Bill Gross. 12 to 15 years ago, Bill penned that book. It's not long. Uh, you might have to get it online. I don't know. It's not the type of thing that probably had a, a shelf life in the bookstores. Um, but I'm sure you can pick it up on Amazon or someplace like that. Um, it's a quick read. It's not jargony. It's not technical. It's just like grandpa's common sense. And it's it's really a, a worthwhile read. I think your, your uh, listeners would appreciate it. Something a little bit more historic and a little bit more maybe maybe up, up, up in the air, would be um, Capital Ideas by one of the great investors of all time, Mr. Peter Bernstein. That's going to be a hardbound, that's going to be a few hundred pages and a little bit heavier uh, work, but well worth the investment. Great. Well, those are both books that we have not had recommended before. Ah, very good. Although I think we have had other books by Peter Bernstein mm-hmm. uh, recommended. Um, and so thank you very much for those. So, David, before we uh, sign off here, what final words of advice and direction uh, do you have for our listeners? Final wor- words of advice and direction, and uh, maybe it, it has to be couched a bit. I, I am a professional investment manager. I will say what every professional investment manager is trained to say, but but I believe, I believe deeply and, and I'm committed to. I think one of the great, disservices of the modern information everything's got to be fast now world we live in is a shortage of patience we occasionally see investors not often because we spend a lot of time with them just make these short-term emotional decisions we had uh, one it was a friend of a client of sure sure we'll happily work with a young doctor and his and his wife, she's a doctor as well, um, withdraw their monies about two weeks back. Um, they were early in their career. They hadn't invested a lot. I don't want to say it was a small account. That sounds, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But um, they just got spooked, and they saw that negative number on the statement and punched out. 
and um, we see it happen occasionally. It is to be avoided uh, at, at all costs because very typically the only way to really lose is to realize those losses. Um, and patience is, I think, the uh, thing in, in shortest supply amongst U.S. investors these days. Yeah, excellent point. And I think anyone in the industry uh, has recognized that all of society and every aspect of society, including our investments, uh, patience is in short supply. So, David, thank you very much. Those are great words. Oh, g- give us a website here. Oh, um, so the website, uh, I would go to A-N-F-I-E-L-D capital.com anfieldcapital.com and you can fish around on there you can see our smiling faces read a little bit about uh, the team and you see the various things we do so i encourage you to go check it out okay thank you very much so david appreciate you being with us today again we've been talking with david young founder and ceo of anfield capital out of newport beach and you've been listening to strategic investor radio on octalkradio.net where we bring you investment strategies you are not hearing elsewhere again we'd love to hear from you at info at strategic and go to our website to hear podcasts of all of our interviews and shows strategic this is charlie wright signing off we Wishing you an enjoyable week and productive investing. You've been listening to The Strategic Investor, your source for compelling investment strategies from some of the most productive asset managers in the industry. For unique investment strategies, visit us at strategicinvestorradio.com. Investing is not rocket science. Wright is an investment advisor representative with Partner Vest Advisory Services, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. The views and opinions expressed by our guests are for informational purposes only and do not necessarily reflect the views of Partner Vest Advisory Services, LLC, or Charlie Wright. Partner Vest and our guests are unaffiliated companies. No information in this discussion is intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice to any person, nor is it an offer to sell any security.